uh, Exodus chapter 3. Andrew today is going to be dealing with Exodus chapter 2 and 3, uh, but he's asked me to read Exodus chapter 3. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, uh, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Uh, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Uh, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, "But, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, uh, the God of your fathers has sent uh, sent me to you, and they ask me, "Uh, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this uh, to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you. And what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. 
and I'll give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall uh, not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and, and on your daughters, so you, you shall plunder the Egyptians. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, let's pray together. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have said that your word is living and active, sharper than any sword, penetrating the division of soul and spirit, joints, of ma- joints and marrow. And you have made it able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So please enable me to speak from this word today faithfully. And may I speak in such a way that your words, ex- uh, such as to expose your words and bring them home to us in the power of your spirit. And please cause your word to do what you have promised it will. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Uh, It is apparently the most isolated western city in the world. However, we spent 11 delightful years in that wonderful city of Perth and then God moved us on again. Uh, And he moved us on to a place that I swore I would never live in, and that is Melbourne. (laughs) And then we found ourselves living in Brunswick. Uh, that inner city just up the north from here, multicultural suburb of Melbourne. Now, Brunswick actually turned out to be not so bad after all. It proved to be a haven for the things that we loved. Uh, Cheap restaurants filled with culinary delights, uh, wonderful coffee, probably the best coffee in Australia around about that area, I think, and a surfeit of second-hand stores, which my wife just cannot help but look at. And before long, we discovered the local neighbourhood graffitiist, Now, um, just around from our house, he had left his mark in black paint daubed across someone's paling fence. Uh, Now, let me tell you, this this particular graffitiist, I think, was a cut above most others. You see, uh, the first piece of work that I looked at and encountered was uh, by, by this anonymous graffitiist, announced that they were a person of independent thinking. You see, the trademark... Uh, In trademark black paint, he painted these words. Free thinkers make up their own slogans. That's not bad, is it, for a graffitiist? Uh, Then across uh, the road, on another paling fence, the same telltale black paint declared this. Uh, This was his own free-thinking slogan. You are not what you own. You can tell this man really was, or woman, really was a cut above most. Um, Now, although I can't admire people that daub paint on other people's property, I I began to take some liking to this stealthy, perhaps nighttime, uh, graffitiist. And uh, it is good, that last one, isn't it? You are not what your own. But I realised that if I stole it and made it my own, then I'd be refusing to take up the challenge of the other statement across the road. (laughs) So I was in trouble, so I decided I would make up my own slogan. Um, And I'm announcing that I'm going to put it out there at the end of this talk for you. Okay, my own slogan. So hang on for it. Uh, And I give you permission to use it for yourself, unless you want to be a free-thinking person yourself. (laughs) Uh, So there's my promise. I promise you a slogan to live by uh, uh, when we finish this talk. Um, A slogan that hopefully will be helpful for you. So stay tuned. Having made that promise, though, I I want to offer a word of warning before we start. 
Most of the time we are going to spend today will be spent in Exodus 3 and 4. And uh, Exodus 3 through to halfway through 4 is a key passage in the whole of the book of Exodus and uh, in the Bible as a whole, I think, because in it some extraordinary things happen. It is complex, in-depth and brimming with theological and textual issues that I am not going to have time to spend doing in great detail with you. So I'm just going to give you what I think is probably uh, how I think it ought to be interpreted. Uh, Let's uh, set the context by recapping Exodus 1 and 2. And I want to do this by using some diagrams that will help us. Uh, So if you've got... uh, You might like to just skim through the passage as I do this. So I don't know um, what I was doing... uh, actually when I did some of these diagrams, but I hope that they will help you. I I think they're a way of helpfully summarising the passage. So here's my overview of Exodus 1 and 2 using some diagrams about Moses and his place in the world. The first one is this one. As we saw, you see, Exodus 1 told us of two major figures in a conflict. On the one side, we saw God, and God has a people. They are the nation of promise, the nation of Israel. He also has a purpose, and that purpose is to bless the world through them. But he also has a protagonist, or an antagonist if you like. That antagonist is Pharaoh. And Pharaoh has a people as well. His people are the people of Egypt. Now let's look at then the second diagram. As we saw, the focus of the chapter clearly falls on a child who is born in verse 1. So have a look in your Bibles we're told that he was a good, or if you like, fine child. He was born into a priestly Israelite family. Therefore, he's well and truly Israelite. And you can see that in diagram two. There is Israel, and here is Moses born into that context. Anyway, as the story goes on, we find that his mother determines that she will save him from Pharaoh's edict, which threatens every male child. And her determination issues, and you'll remember this, in her putting him, the, the boy in a basket and floating him down the river Nile. The baby is found by the daughter of Pharaoh and she adopts him and she names him Moses. Now as it happens, uh, his name has both Egyptian and Hebrew overtones or echoes. It summarises who Moses is. He is a child who was born in the midst of a conflict between God and Pharaoh. He has a foot in Israel and one foot in Egypt. And that's captured in our third diagram. Now, by the end of the verse, we find Moses caught between two cultures, as it were. There is Israel and Egypt, and he is bang in the middle. Let's now turn to the fourth diagram. Uh, in this particular diagram, it's, it summarises what happens between Exodus 2.11 through to 15. In verse 11, we find Moses an adult. He goes out to his people and his heart turns toward them. He acts on their behalf by killing an Egyptian who's cruelly beating an Israelite. But his efforts are rejected by his people and he's treated as an outsider. And not only this, when Pharaoh hears what has happened, he seeks to kill Moses. So by verse 15, Moses has become an outsider of both Israel and Egypt. He is out on his own. Neither culture wants anything to do with him. So he belongs, in one sense, to neither culture. Now in verses 17 to 22, Moses finds a third group of people to whom he might belong, that is the Midianites. He rescues a Midianite woman. 
the daughter of a priest of Midian. He has a child by her. But look at verse 22 with me. So Exodus 2, 22. We're told that Zipporah gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now I want you to notice something about this child. His name indicates Moses' situation. He names the first child Gershom, which means I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And you see, what is Moses saying by doing this? He's saying, I feel isolated. I do not belong here even in Midian. Although I'm incorporated into Midian, my heart lies elsewhere. I belong elsewhere. I'm in search of an identity. He is in search of belonging somewhere. He does not belong anywhere at this point. And that brings us to verses 23 to 25. You see, if you've read through from uh, the early part of Exodus 1, right through until now, God has largely been absent from the story. His people, now we hear, groan in slavery and Yahweh shines through, or the Lord shines through. Uh, Their cry goes to him for help. Their cry for rescue rises to him. He hears and he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he acts in accord with the promise that he gave. He sees the people of Israel and uh, the text, uh, the Hebrew text says, and he knows. Far richer word than he cares in one sense, he knows. And uh, we the readers know that when God remembers and knows, he's about to do something. And when he knows, he's sure to do something. So we wait in anticipation for what is going to happen from here. We know that God is going to rescue his people. We know it's going to happen through this man, Moses. But Moses has not yet risen to the occasion. Two-thirds of his life, uh, as we'll find by the time we get to the next chapter, have drifted by since chapter 1. Forty years has drifted by, but by the time we reach chapter 3, 80 years of his 120 years have drifted by. We find from Exodus chapter 7, seven verse 7, that this time is approximately, you, you, that's where you can check up the 80 years. Our prospective hero is at the beginning of chapter 3, simply a nomadic shepherd in the household and service of a certain Midianite, feeling isolated, And there he is. Now that's how we find him in the first verse of Exodus chapter 3. He appears to be in search of fresh pasture and in the providence of God, he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, Same as Mount Sinai. So Horeb, Mount Sinai, they're just called different names in the Pentateuch. And in the midst of his daily pursuits, he comes across a bush that is burning. And you can see this uh, in verse chapter 2. There's something strange about it, as you can imagine, because... uh, he, he thinks, oh, I've got to take a closer look at this, and he does. And he discovers that the bush is burning, but not being consumed by the flames. And this is where it all starts. What began as uh, just another day, doing the same old thing that he always did, turns out to be a fundamentally different day from all others that had gone before it. Uh, a new and extraordinary chapter opens in his life. The ordinary turns out to be the extraordinary And a new man will emerge at the end of this day. For on this day, you see, Moses meets God. And not just any God, but the living God who knows and remembers and has a covenant with his people. Look at God identify himself. Verse 6. He is the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of 
of Jacob. You see, this is the God of his fathers. Nothing will ever be the same again for this man. Moses will never be the same as he comes out from this day. So let's take a look at the dynamics of the encounter. And it's a wonderful story. Uh, Look at verse 7. First thing God does is to state the occasion for his intrusion into this man's life. He has intruded because he has seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. He has heard their cry and he knows of their sufferings. With three verbs, God acknowledges the trouble of his people. Then comes the fourth. You see, not only does God see, not only does he hear, not only does he know, but he comes down. He comes down. You see, the seeing, hearing and knowing God is never static. Uh, And when the living God sees, hears and knows, he acts. And He is mobilised and he enters into the trouble of his people. He is the caring and acting of God. God, of course, this will reach its culmination, won't it, in the incarnation when God will come down in his son. But uh, this is his nature. And we can see it in the next two verses. For they tell us that this living God will rescue and deliver. That is, he will bring up. And with the language of Exodus, he will deliver them from Egypt. He will bring them into a new land or up into a new land. You see, and where Egypt had been full of oppression and evil, this new land will be full of space and goodness. And in verse 9, the crunch comes. For God tells Moses how he intends to accomplish this. How he intends to deliver and bring up. And he intends to do it through a human agent. He intends to do it through this shepherd going and confronting the most powerful one of the most powerful kings of the most powerful nations of the ancient Near East. Look at verse 10. Come, I'm, trying to, I'm going to emphasise this the way I think perhaps Moses would have heard it. Come, I am going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people and the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, friends, uh, this is the very first time in the history of Israel that God has specifically chosen his agent and spoken of sending them. It's a first off. Moses is not to know that. All he knows is who God's speaking to. He knows it's him that is meant to be God's agent. And so Moses puts forward the first of five objections. In my view, it's possible that each of the objections looks back to a reality that had been part of the life of Moses up until this point. And I'll point them out as we go along. Each of them represents Moses thinking about who he, who he has been and realising that his past cripples him for what is about to be to unfold. First objection has to do with identity, that is, with who he is. You see it in verse 11. Can you see it there? Who am I, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Israel? God has said, you, he said, who am I that I should be doing this? And God's response is clear. In the original language, this verse begins a word play that will will dominate these coming verses. Moses says, who am I? And in verse 12, God responds with, but I will be with you. Can, Can you see what's going on here? Uh, God is emphatically saying that the issue is not who Moses is, but who he, God, is. This God will be with Moses, and this God will ensure that the success that is announced in the, the, the success that's announced in the second half of this verse, the you in this verse is plural. God is saying that Moses and the people will serve God on this mountain. That's who the you is. 
The sign of that success will only be seen in the future as Moses in the present steps out in trust of God and in obedience to him. And God is clear. What matters, you see, is not the identity of Moses. It is not, the, it is not him. It is the presence of God with the Lord present with him all will be secure. Without him, nothing will be secure. Moses will indeed fail as he feared. Now, it's apparent from verse 13 that Moses is not so easily persuaded. And so he comes back to God uh, and look at it in verse 13. He says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Well, what shall I say to him, uh, say to them? You see, uh, do you remember his last attempt back in chapter 2? of helping the people. Do you remember what a Hebrew man said to him? He said, who made you prince and judge over us? In other words, who gave you authority to deliver us? And Moses has been here before. He's heard these words before. He knows what's going to be asked of him. He's failed before and this time must be different. And so it is that God takes on the objection again and he says to Moses, look at it, verse 14, I am who I am and he said, this, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now all of you here know this is a very complex verse and I don't have time to explore it extensively but I think it's important to say a few things about it. Many of them you'll know, some of them you won't. First, our English translations of the Bible have a tradition of translating the name that God gives in verse 15 as the Lord and they show it by showing the word Lord entirely in capital letters. First letter in uh, large type and then small caps for the rest of it. That arises from the fact that in order to avoid the possibility of misusing the name mentioned here, Hebrew readers would not read it out loud and would simply replace it with the Hebrew word equivalent to Lord, Adonai. However, the name probably sounded something like Yahweh. Yahweh. Though we can't know for sure for since the original text of the Hebrew had no vowels and people had stopped pronouncing it many years before to avoid breaking one of the commandments, we don't actually know how it sounded, but in most likelihood it was Yahweh. So, and I'm going to start using the word now because I think it's important because here God shows, tells us what the meaning of that word is. Um, so, second, the second four letters of the Tetragrammaton, sorry, the four letters of the Tetragrammaton that Y-H-W-H, as it were, are a proper noun derived from the Hebrew, or from a Hebrew verb, which means to be, to happen, to become. A third, there's some debate about how the tense of the original Hebrew should be translated. My own preferred version would be this. I will be whom I will be. Say this to the people of Israel. I will be has sent me to you. Anyway, with those details behind us, uh, we need to see that at the core of this verse, what is happening is that God is revealing both his name and its meaning. Okay, Both his name and its meaning. Right up front, God has revealed himself to Moses as the God of the fathers. And Moses responds with, who am I? And now God has told Moses that the issue is not who Moses is, but who he, God, is. And in turn, Moses come back and said, and exactly who are you? to which he has said, to which God gives clarification. God responds by saying, 
I will be whom I will be. And that's the only time in scripture where God explicitly explains his name. Now he explains it by saying that his name displays his nature and his nature will be shown by what he does. It will be revealed in his actions on behalf of his people. He, what, who he is will be made clear by what he does. However, Moses needs to know that although this is the case, this is no new God. So God reminds him of that. There's continuity between Israel's past and Israel's future. The God who's revealing himself now, God makes clear, is the same one, will be the one who reveals himself in future acts. He's the same one who has revealed himself in the past to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Anyway, with all of that detail, which is important to state, let's move on to our text again, verses 16 to 22. God gives explicit instructions to Moses. He's to convey clear news to the elders of Israel and uh, look at verse 18. They will listen. The king of Egypt will not let Israel go unless God compels him, verse 19. The Egyptians will be plagued, verse, um, ni- verse 20. Deliverance will occur and Pharaoh will let them go, verse 20. The Egyptians <coughs> will be plundered, sorry. <coughs> and any obstacle, no matter who, how big, is taken into account. Aaron, could you find me some water? That would be great. <coughs> God will overcome them all. But Moses objects for the third time. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Look at what he says. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Now, again, Moses, I think, knows his past. Uh, He was not trusted. He was not listened to by his people. But there's more here, you see. Moses here is directly refuting what God has said. Much appreciated. Thank you. Uh, It's clear, you see, that he's saying, God, your verbal assurances are not enough for me. God responds in verse 2. He says, throw down your staff to the ground. The staff turns into a snake and Moses turns tail and runs. Then God says, take up your fear in your hand, as it were, and he tells him, pick up the writhing snake. And uh, it promptly turns back into a staff. But God knows the hearts of humans. He knows that even the miraculous is sometimes not compelling. And so he touches Moses' fear again. He says, shove your hand inside your clothes. And it comes out white and leprous. And then he restores it to health. And he tells Moses that these two signs, these two things are to be signs for him but they're also to be for the people. They are weapons in his armoury so that he can assure the people and so that his words can have some backing. Uh, but it's incredible, isn't it? Moses is not deterred even by this. In verse uh, 10, he objects for the fourth time, and I want you to look at his objection. He says this, verse 10, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I want you to look at God's response here and see if you can hear the tone. Then the Lord said to him, And who made the, a man's mouth? And who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Do you hear the tone? Perhaps a sense of irritation. 
And it's understandable, isn't it? I mean, think about what is going on here. Moses is speaking to the creator, the one who made the mouth, the one who can make people deaf or mute at will, the one who gives sight to the blind. God is God. He gives to or he takes from people as he deems fit. And look, the objection is absolutely pitiful coming from a man who's staring at a bush burning but not being consumed. Pitiful. Anyway, the tempo is really quickened. There is some sense of, do you hear the humour also through this? There is, I think, through this whole narrative, just that little tinge of humour that is going. Uh, time is running out for Moses. There are no decent objections or excuses. He must go or refuse. And he chooses the latter. <laughs> it's a desperate plea, isn't it? Look at verse, uh, look at verse 13. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> It is a plaintive cry. Uh, But verse 14 tells us that God's irritation turns to anger. Even so, uh, God in his anger is tinged, his anger is tinged with mercy. Aaron is appointed spokesman, a sort of prophet for Moses, but Moses cannot shrink from responsibility. Someone may do the talking for him, but he's the front man. And from this time on, there will be no discussion or objections. Moses is just given a job and God urges him to pick up that staff, that gentle reminder of his background, that gentle reminder of this incident, that gentle reminder that a staffs can be snakes so ordinary men can be deliverers. And off he must go. Friends, uh, let me just return to my series of diagrams. Um, Previously, we noticed that before this encounter with God, Moses was a man isolated. Something new happens in chapter 3. Moses comes to Sinai, the mountain of God, the place of God. There God confronts him, grasps him, and co-ops him into his service. Now, now, no matter how reluctant he feels, he was to return to the people of God as God's agent to rescue them. By the way, I, I might urge you to look at this particular diagram, since this is about uh, our ministry in a multicultural Australia, it's very important to notice something here. Uh, I have a friend, Weihan Kwan, the Victorian State Director of CMS, who, when I tried these diagrams out on him, thought that I hadn't quite got them all correct. Uh, well, actually, he quipped that I needed another one. And he said this, he said that Moses was, in one sense, the original third culture kid. Can you see the three cultures? And can you see, in one sense, he actually has a fourth culture in there as well. That is, he he comes from the mountain of God, from God's presence. But he's right, isn't he? There's more. Take take another look at it, you see. Uh, Another friend and colleague pointed out that, in one sense, Moses is here a forerunner to Jesus. Can you see it? You see, Jesus came from the Father. He, too, was one of the people, even as Jesus was human like us. Nevertheless, just as Moses always seemed somewhat at a distance from the people of Israel, sometimes rejected by them and yet operated as a mediator of God's purposes for them, so it was with Jesus. As John says in John 1, Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And yet as John reminds us in John 1, the truly great news is that all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, friends, with that said, let me try and draw all this together so that we might think about what it means for us. You see, it's clear that the centre of the passage is clearly that wonderful, enigmatic, 
revelation by God to Moses in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. Moses comes into this incident, you see, seeking self-identity. God comes to him and God tells him in no uncertain terms that his own identity is what, not what is important, but the identity of the one who confronts him. He says, Moses is not who you are, it's who I am. And then Yahweh grasps him, commands him, overwhelms him, and Moses finds his identity and his task. He's not Moses the shepherd any longer. He's not Moses the exile any longer. He's not the sojourner any longer. He is Moses the man of Yahweh. It is Yahweh who shapes him now. From now on, his whole existence will be shaped by this named God, Yahweh. Things will never be the same for him. He will now find himself occasionally in places uh, that he doesn't want to be. But having met this God, there is nowhere else to go and nowhere else to be. For he is the true and living God. Friends, this man Moses is the only man in history to whom God has revealed the meaning of his name. The scriptures of the Old Testament tell us that he spoke to God face to face. But let me let you into a little secret. You see, no matter how grand this encounter is, no matter what in the enormity of this revelation was, friends, it pales into insignificance beside the revelation that is in Jesus Christ. For in Jesus we have seen whom God will be in history, haven't we? We have seen who he is in his son. We have stared God in the face in Jesus Christ. For in Jesus, the God, the one and only Son, has come down and made the Father known. And we have listened in the preach, to the preaching of the gospel. We've listened to the scriptures tell us about him. And we've received him, we've believed in him, and we've become the children of God. And no matter who we were before, friends, things are now changed, aren't they? We are no longer simply shepherds. We're not simply fishermen. We're not accountants or doctors or plumbers or school teachers or students or pastors or church planters. No, we're Christians. We're slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are not what we do. The graffitiist has got it right. We are not what we own. But they, the, the graffitiist only has half the picture. So let me slightly amend his slogan. Let's turn it into something, I hope, a little more profound. My piece of graffiti that arises out of this chapter, I haven't written it anywhere uh, on a fence, I want to urge you. Uh, and then I think comes out of God's revelation in Christ would be this. We are who owns us. Does that make sense? We are who owns us. Friends, Moses discovered that his identity was not bound up with his past. His identity, his life, his existence is bound up with the God who has now, who now owns him. Do you know what the very last name given to Moses is in the Pentateuch? You can check it up later on. It's in Exodus, it's in Deuteronomy 34. He is called 
the servant, the slave of Yahweh. The servant, the slave of Yahweh. You see, he is Yahweh's. And so it is with us. For we have been transformed, we have been ransomed from a futile existence and brought, bought with the precious blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And our faith and our hope and our destiny are set on the God we have met in Jesus Christ. Our identity is bound up with God who has called us. Friends, let me assure you, and some of you will have experienced this already, that this God will undoubtedly, as he did with the Apostle John, take you to some places you don't wish to go and give you some experiences you wish you did not have and confront you with some conflicts in life that you wish he did not confront you with. But friends, he has grasped us and he commands us. And let me tell you, at times he will overwhelm us. But in him we have found who we are. And we are his creatures. And we are those whom he has loved. And we are his. And we know, don't we, that there is nowhere else to go but where he is and where he works and to do what he is doing. Where else can we go? For as the disciples say to Jesus, he, you alone have the words of eternal life. He alone will bring us home to where we belong. He alone gives us meaning and purpose and identity. We are friends who owns us. Now let's be frank with our Lord and Master and let us call out to him. Uh, let's, as it were, talk to him frankly and openly and honestly. But let's go where he is. And let's do what he commands. For we are who owns us. Friends, I've said to you today that the gospel is clear. You belong to God. I've also said that you are called to reflect God's ownership of you in all of your life. You are God's person. You are God's slave. Not like our translations put it, servant, no. You are the slaves of Jesus Christ at his beck and call. Your identity is now derived from God's ownership over you. And I hope that every one of you can sign off on that so far. I know many of you have committed your, yourself to ministry because you have signed off on that. I hope that this is the bottom line for you. And, and I hope this is so because you have met Jesus at the cross. Now, if you have your life has been changed forever. The salvation that you received through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ will drive you into a life of service. You were saved for this. Belonging to Jesus will thrust you into a life of ministry. After all, this is what being Christian is all about, isn't it? Serving the Lord Jesus Christ. No Christian's exempt from this, so I hope you've all signed off on that. But because you belong to God, you'll want to be where he is, doing what he is doing. And friends, he is still doing it everywhere around the world and he's doing it in your city. And he's doing it amongst people whose language you can't speak. Some you can speak. He's doing it everywhere. All around the world, people are turning to Jesus. 
They need to hear him. And you know this. So continue to line yourself up with this God and never stop asking him what he wants of you and how you can best serve him. But let me close uh, with some words from a man who personally grappled with the sorts of things that we've grappled with as we've looked at this passage today. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and as many of you know, he was imprisoned and executed by the Nazis during the Second World War because of his resistance to what Hitler was doing. And in prison he wrote a poem called Who Am I? Who Am I? Now let me read it to you, it goes like this. Who am I? They often tell me. I step out from my cell, composed, contented, sure, like a lord from his manor. Who am I? Well, they often tell me. I speak with my jailers frankly, familiar and firm, as though I was in command. Who am I? They also tell me I bear the days of hardship, unconcerned, amused and proud, like one who usually wins. Now, am I really what others tell me? Or am I only what I myself know of me? Troubled, homesick, ill like a bird in a cage, gasping for breath as though one strangled me, hungering for colours, for flowers, for songs of uh, birds, thirsting for kind words, for human company, quivering with anger at despotism and petty insults, (coughs) anxiously waiting for great events, helplessly worrying about friends far away, empty and tired of praying, of thinking, of working, exhausted, and ready to bid farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I then this today and the other tomorrow? Am I both at the same time in public, a hypocrite, by myself a contemptible, whining weakling? Or am I to myself like a beaten army, flying in disorder from victory already won? Do you hear the struggle in the man? Who am I? Lonely questions mock me. Who I really am, you know me. I am thine, O God. We are who owns us. Who am I? You know me. I am thine, O God. Let's pray. Father, you know who we are, for you have bought us for yourself, by the blood of your own. Father, we are yours and we give ourselves to you that you might do with us as you will. Father, for we know there is no better place to be than your servants and in your presence. So, Father, please, uh, amidst all the struggles of life and ministry, please be with us, for we know you are in your Son. So who are we, Father? We know we are yours, O God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.